This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Bullying is something that has always been there. Personally, I believe it always will be there. People always want to exert dominance over another. It happens on social media now. You don't think somebody's showing off what they're doing or where they are is is kind of a form of bullying? Maybe soft bullying, but it's still, hey, I'm better than you. Look at me. Still happens. But how about if we break it down to kids? Because that's what we're dealing with in this particular situation. Joining us right now is Dr. Deborah Pepler. Dr. Pepler is an author and a Canadian psychologist. She's a distinguished research professor at York University. Dr. Pepler, how are things going today? Well, it's a sunny day, but I have a heavy heart, I have to tell you. You read any of the information coming out of uh, Hamilton, and and it is bringing up more stories. Global News has had a story about a family who lost a child now 22 years ago, and it was a beating death and a drowning. And this one in Hamilton is a stabbing. And you think, why? Like, how, how how does this happen? You've been able to study this a little bit. Are there is there any answer you can give to us about why a, a couple of kids or a group of children would do this to somebody else? Well, at one level that we can never understand this kind of violence. At another level, it's it's it, the increasing abuse of power. So when bullying starts, it's a few act actions. And once it gets going, there's a dynamic that takes place where the child who's bullying gains power and the, and the child who's being victimized loses power. And it creates a dynamic where the child who's bullying feels, um, in some sense, excitement. We can see this. We videotape children on the playground. The children who bully get excited. They get aroused which means they're not thinking very clearly. And power is a wonderful thing, but it's absolutely essential that we reflect and use power positively and not negatively because it creates such abusive situations. In the worst of the worst situations, you have people looking and and trying to come up with answers. And one of the things that we've heard from Hamilton is everybody failed Devon. Everybody failed him. Who do you look at as being key to either stopping a situation, recognizing a situation? Well, students are very reticent to, to report bullying because often they're not believed or they think the adults can't do anything or the adults do anything. In Devin's case, his mother tried really hard. Apparently, She went to the school three times and said, my son is being bullied. And the school in those contexts is required to respond and develop safety plans for students and ensure that when they walk through the door, they are completely safe. Do you know the Education Act gives responsibilities to principals and teachers? The first responsibility is to keep children safe. The second responsibility is to educate them. So if children aren't safe, they can't be educated. And we've forgotten that. You know, in these situations where children are being abused as they walk through the door of the school, we are not keeping them safe. We are not upholding their right 
to be safe. We are talking with Dr. Deborah Pepler, Distinguished Research Professor at York University. We're talking about bullying. And Dr. Pepler, we have had the upstander and bystander discussion throughout schools for a long, long time. We have a day that recognizes bullying. It's presented to kids. And you like to think that because it's out there, because maybe that stigma and that, hey, you can't talk about this or it'll get worse, that that maybe that has been exposed. Do we see any improvement or are human beings just acting like human beings as human beings have always acted? I think there is improvement, and some of our Canadian data would suggest that the number of students who bully others has decreased, but unfortunately, the number of students who are victimized has increased since 2006. So probably the most in the, the students who are bullying most intensively have many targets, and they now have um, cyberbullying and social media as a channel for bullying. So I think there's much more understanding. The difficulty is it doesn't translate into moment-to-moment behavior, and that's what we need. So we need adults to listen, adults to believe children or their parents when they come forward. We need adults to intervene and make it clear this isn't acceptable, and we need peers to intervene or in some way report the bullying that they see because... There are always peers there when bullying occurs. It's a display of power. You want people to see that you're powerful. And those students have a responsibility also to keep their peers safe. And if they don't feel comfortable intervening, if they themselves don't feel safe stepping in and intervening, they can report it to an adult or connect with that student and pull the student away or later come back and talk to the student and console them and align with them. We look at if that scenario were to play out and the idea that a bully would be reprimanded but not reprimanded all that heavily and then would come back on the person that they were bullying. You can't have that person under guard 24 hours a day and as much as kids might speak up or adults might speak up, it may come down to another one-on-one situation or three-on-one situation. How do you deal with that? You know, that's so difficult. And I think, you know, I I don't think we've thought enough about the children who bully. They've probably come into school, and there are many, many different types of children who bully, but they've probably come into school without the right um, or adequate upbringing that taught them to, to control their impulses, to regulate their behavior, to think about others, to think about what others are feeling, think about what they're feeling. So they've missed a lot of the important relationship skill building that each and every one of us needs to get along in this world. And I think we can identify who those children are quite early in their schooling, and they they and their family need help to learn how to get attention, to lead in positive ways, to control their impulses and think about others. We are talking with Dr. Deborah Pepler, Distinguished Research Professor at York University. We're talking about bullying, and maybe that's an avenue that we need to look at right now. What if you get wind as a parent or a grandparent or anyone that your child, your grandchild, your neighbor is being the bully? How do you deal with that? 
Well, I think you talk about it and communicate it and help them see the other person's feelings and help them think about what those feelings are when they experience it and find ways that those children can get status and power in positive ways. So in some sense, it seems contradictory, but can those students be class leaders if they're well monitored? Could they be be playground monitors? If, if you're monitoring them well so that they're not, again, abusing their power, but helping them figure out how they can get power and attention in positive ways might turn some of them um, into understanding others and understanding that it's much better to use power positively than negatively. Yeah, and that word keeps coming up, that, that power word. When you look at, at kind of that... That power, is that something that is just in these kids and and is, is always going to be there for either, I guess, you know, for good things or for not so good things? You know, your question's a really good one. There's power in each of us. And as we get older, move into adulthood, we have lots of power. We have power to make decisions in our lives and, and other types of power. So... As we raise children, we need to think about how we as adults use our power and whether we're sharing power with children and ensure that we're not using power over children in a negative way. So that shapes our discipline quite a lot. We have to, of course, discipline children and guide them, but we shouldn't be harming them as we, as we do that. And then we need to think about it in the workplace. We need to think about it in our, in our, intimate relationships and our friendships because power is in all of those relationships and it's really important for us to use power positively in relationships rather than negatively. Dr. Deborah Pepler with us, a psychology professor at York University, the author of Bullying Prevention, What Parents Need to Know. If we look in, in these two cases that we've mentioned now, the one 22 years ago, which you can read more about at globalnews.ca, the one in Hamilton, we're looking at more than one person being involved in this. 22 years ago, it was a group of kids. Here, we're looking at more than one involved in this particular murder in Hamilton. Is is there kind of that pack dog mentality in this, or, or is that something different among what's happening with the kids? I think it's it's the pack, it's the group dynamics. You you've identified it exactly. When we look at juvenile crime, uh, it's ninety five percent of it is is carried out by more than one person, and perhaps two things happen. There's a bravado about it, and and you feel safer doing it with somebody else. There there are deviant processes that have been observed between youth who are antisocial. They ramp each other up, and there's an arousal factor to it. So so especially for children whose brains haven't developed in, in the optimal way, their emotion centers of their brains fire off, and their, their logical thinking um, parts of the brain can't downplay that, where usually children can downregulate, they can they can calm themselves down and think about what they're doing. When when these children are highly aroused, they are just swept up in it. And our observation shows that as they become more aroused, they become more aggressive because they're not monitoring their behavior. So it's a dynamic that happens in a group, and it 
it can take off, and it's very frightening. In the end, Dr. Pepler, we keep hearing the word more as well, that we need more, more resources, more attention paid to this. Is that something you'd concur with? I do, and I think in in our schools we should be educating the whole child. And we do well in math and literacy and science education, but we don't have enough in our schools about social-emotional learning. And I think there's a huge need, especially for those children who, who are unprepared as they enter our school system. We need to give them a leg up and give them the kind of learning that's going to help them understand themselves and others and, and enable them to have healthy relationships. Dr. Pepler, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Deborah Pepler, Canadian psychologist, distinguished research professor at York University. So is there a solution? No, just more attention to it. But how do you take away something that may be innately human? If you have all of this boiling back to one of the main problems we have in a lot of things, bad parenting. If that's where this is boiling back to, if it's bad parenting, how do you fix that without saying you have to pass a test to have a kid? I'm sorry. That comes in. And there's no way that would ever pass. There's no way anyone would ever allow that. You can't take away my right. And you can't. That's that's maybe a world you don't want to live in. Because if you're in a world where it's you have to pass a test to have a kid, which I believe would be useful... It would also have a few other restrictions to it that may not feel all that useful. But if it's coming out of the home, what do you do? You can report it all you want. And I think that's still a positive, but it's probably not going to make a difference in the end if that bully or if those bullies are as determined or as willing to go as far as murder. You know what tomorrow is? A real countdown. Tomorrow becomes tick, 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 one week until edibles become completely legal. Oh, those edibles. Well, what's that mean? I don't know. I thought that it was going to be completely wild and crazy when marijuana was legalized, and I was taught that no. No, that uh, that hasn't really been the case. Now, has everything been perfect? No. But what will edibles do? Well, if we look at some very interesting statistics that have come out, we can kind of get a picture of Ontarians and some of their habits when it comes to cannabis-related products even before edibles become legal. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Joining us is Teresa DeFelice, who is the Assistant Vice President of Government and Community Relations at CAA. Teresa, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Let's see. We've got uh, 1.2 million Ontario drivers who have apparently admitted to at some point having driven high. Uh, that number right there, I, I find head-scratching, but there it is. What else are we finding about those drivers who admit to driving high? Well, we're finding some very concerning um, responses to their activities. 72% of that 1.2 million waited three hours or less to get behind the wheel. And and then even a subset of that, 27%, 
said, they, they got behind the wheel feeling really high or somewhat high. So they knowingly were feeling the effects of consuming cannabis and, and got behind the wheel and drove. Huh. Now, there are those who will say, don't worry. You know, it's not like I'm drinking six beers and getting behind the wheel. In fact, when I'm high, I have more control over everything. I, I think more clearly. I, I drive better. What would that kind of an attitude be like when you actually looked at the science and the stats? Yeah, our, our study revealed the same thing, that there is a myth out there that people drive the same or better when they're high by a certain percentage of, of cannabis users. Um, but we've done other research uh, that looked at the actual skills needed for driving after consuming just even one joint, and uh, that isn't uh, that isn't the case. Even up to five hours after consuming that one um, joint or, or you know cannabis cigarette, so um, it, it shows that uh, perception is still off. Um, you know the judgment in terms of being able to react and deal with certain situations that come up on the road. Um, so if all things were equal, you know, and it was the same route, nothing ever happened, you know, some people are getting lucky, but, but that isn't really what the science is telling us. We're talking right now with Teresa DeFelice, Assistant Vice President of Government and Community Relations at CAA, about some statistics that they have come up with. We're approaching October 17th, 2019, which is the first anniversary of the legalization of cannabis. Edibles are going to become legal on October the 17th of 2019. So... If, if we're to look at maybe another side of the research, if people are deciding to smoke marijuana, some will do it on a daily basis, sure. Some will do it ah, on the weekend when, yeah, I'm, I'm having a good time, but don't worry. You know, I only have one beer and, and maybe a puff. You know, it's not affecting me because, because I can drink one beer and drive or, or I can, I can have one puff and drive and, and that's, that's fine. But what do you find when, when people are mixing things like that together? Yeah, some of the data that we've explored in other jurisdictions that have had cannabis legal a lot longer than we have demonstrate that the poly user, um, that's those who consume cannabis with other substances, and in majority of the times it's alcohol, that isn't the case. The road safety stats are showing us that there's a real concern. Uh, we know it's a recreational drug and it's being consumed in a recreational way. They're at a friend's house, they're partying whatever it may be, but this, this mixed use is actually a, a, a bad recipe for, for road carnage. And then if we look at the fact that edibles are going to become legal, you also did ask a question about whether or not people were interested in that. What did you find? So edibles is a very hot topic, and I think there's some people who already think it's legal because they you know, are able to maybe get their hands on it. Um, you know, it'll be a couple of months after legalization where we'll probably see it hit the sort of the store shelves that that of the legal uh, dispensaries or the legal shops. Um, you know, there's a couple of things. Edibles impacts your body in a very different way. It, unlike a, consuming it through smoking or vaping, which is almost an immediate effect or within a 20-minute span, edibles can take two, three hours uh, longer to, to impact your body. What was surprising about the study is that, you know, we, we assess people who are regular users, those who try it once in a while or have tried it, and those who have never touched cannabis and of the of those that have never touched cannabis 12 percent said that they were willing to now consume cannabis through buying edible products which maybe doesn't sound like the biggest number but you're talking about a certain part of the population that would just be added into the rest of people who say yeah 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 i've, I've used that in the past and uh yeah i probably will so you're talking about people who've never used before and 12 percent are saying edibles yeah i'm interested in that 
Right. And, and our hope is that those people don't drive and anybody who consumes finds another way home. Uh, the challenge with that is if you have people who just don't understand uh, how their body reacts to, to the product and, and depending on when they're doing it or how they're doing it and they consume it and they're not feeling anything, uh, then they get behind the wheel. Uh, because they've got to get to where they're, you know, get home or whatever it may be. They're not recognizing that this is going to interact with your body and metabolize in a very different way. And so from a road safety perspective, we're really concerned about that as well. Well, thanks for getting the message out because it is an important conversation. It's probably along the lines of something else we've been battling for years, which is drinking and driving, where it comes down to somebody having to say, no, I'm I'm not going to do this instead of saying, I've done it five or six times in my life. I'll be fine this time. Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate the time. Teresa, have yourself a great day. Thank you, too. That is Teresa DeFelice. She is with the Government and Community Relations Department from CAA. And we're not trying to be alarmist here, but these are some stats that they have come up with. And the problem with cannabis-related products is you don't know. You don't know how it will affect you. Look at vaping right now. Vaping has to be a prime example of this. Because you're apt to think of everything along the same lines. So, oh, one vape is like any other vape. And what do we have? We have people dying. New York State just had their first death due to vaping. And we'll have more. And eventually we will get a death in Canada due to vaping. Because not all vape is the same. And if you're looking at something, alcohol is maybe the best comparable for cannabis. At least that's how we pair them together. And with alcohol, what do we do? A beer is a beer is a beer? Kind of. You've got, oh, it's just American beer. It's watery. Oh, you know, you've got light beer. Uh, it's watery. Then you start getting into the percentage of alcohol. And we pay attention to that. But you don't necessarily think about wine as a percentage of alcohol. You may think about liquor and spirits in that way. But with cannabis... It's going to be difficult to get those numbers to compute. And we've had experts on the show, and I don't know if you heard the recommendation, but I really liked the recommendation. I think it'll save a lot of people. The recommendation is this. If you're going to try it, try a little, and then don't try anymore until tomorrow. And you think, well, well, that's silly. No, you have no idea how long it's going to take to absorb into your system. You don't know how your, how your system is going to respond to that. If you're going to try some, try a little, and then don't try any until tomorrow. And I got talking to a buddy of mine about that, and he told a story that comes from somebody else, but he told a story about a woman who was given some sherbet, and the sherbet had cannabis in it, whatever. I don't, I don't know what was in it, but it had THC in it. The sherbet was, you know, orange in color. And so she was given this and she was told, go home. Now, don't eat all of this. It was in like a little cup. It wasn't like she brought home a great big tub. Little In a little cup. And so she went home and she had a spoonful and then she waited about 20 minutes and nothing happened. And so she had another spoonful and another spoonful, and eventually she'd eaten the whole cup. Well, that night was was a bad night. It did not go well when it all hit. And then she spent the rest of the weekend re-wallpapering her bathroom 
because she was so sick, she got orange sherbet all over the walls. So that's the kind of thing you got to watch out for in all of this. We are going to talk about a little something that it involves Nick Nanos, who is the chair of Nanos Researchers, and or chair of Nanos Research, and it involves some research that was done across London in September to rate the Forest City. Oh, the Forest City. That's us. What were they rating? Well, they were looking at several things. Healthcare. What do you think of healthcare in London? They wondered about the performance of municipal leaders on various issues. They wondered about economic stability. They wondered about your quality of life. And this is something that becomes very, very interesting because they've taken that research, they've turned it into numbers, and now we get an opportunity to hear more about those numbers. We have with us the CEO of the London St. Thomas Association of Realtors, John Jiha, and we also have Mr. Nick Nanos, who is the man who is at the helm of Nanos Research. Gentlemen, how are things? Nick? Well, uh, hi, Mike. It's John Jiha. Nick will join us in a moment. Uh, we're in a, we just finished the conference Nick presenting the findings to our membership. Oh, excellent. Okay. So let us know about how things played out today, John, when you look at how this was presented. Why was this done? It was done at a request from LSTAR, working with the Ontario Real Estate Association. And we have worked with Nick in the past at the Canadian Real Estate Association meetings and the Ontario Real Estate meetings on his research and we know the importance of housing issues in our region. Uh, housing affordability, affordable housing, homelessness, the stress test. And so with Nick's history, his background, the work that he does around the country and the U.S., the pulse that he has, we thought it was perfect timing for Nick to come in and do a specific study on the city of London. So we contracted with Nick um, in late August, and the study started through September. And he brought the findings. And we did open this up beyond just the London St. Thomas members. We had a number of our councillors and MPPs. Mayor Holder was here. Joe Preston was here from St. Thomas, as well as leadership from outside the real estate industry, because the findings were invaluable when it comes to the reality of what's taking place with the housing issues in our region. So we were very pleased with the research. We had a, a full audience, and the response was outstanding. We're talking with John Giha, who is the CEO of the London and St. Thomas Association of Realtors. We're talking about research done by Nanos Research that looked at this area, asked a number of questions. Again, we know the issues, and we've heard about the issues concerning housing and what we need to do to move forward becomes a big question. So this will certainly look at a number of areas like that. Now, in terms of having this research done, John, is this something that is kind of a, a brand new thing that is being tried? Has this been tried in the past? It's the first time that Nick has done this type of research anywhere in the country. And it is very important to the foundation, the strategic plan of LSTAR, working with Western University on research 
and Fanshawe College, working with our MPs, MPTs, and our counselors. And this just adds to, this is actually the catalyst working with Nick to move our strat plan forward, focusing on the future. So it is uh, at the beginning, but he has not completed a study at this level before. Wow. So I'm Nick is sitting here, and I'm ready to turn the phone over to Nick so that he can share and answer any questions that you have, Mike. Well, John, we really appreciate you setting the stage for this, and thank you for having the research done so that we can analyze it. You're welcome. Here's Nick. That is John Giha, CEO of London and St. Thomas Association of Realtors, and we welcome Nick Nanos of Nanos Research to London Live. Nick, how's London treating you? Great. London's a fantastic city. How are you doing, Mike? Well, I'm great, and, and I feel the same way. I'm fascinated to know how everybody else is feeling about London. John had mentioned this was the first time you'd done research of this nature. What was this like for you? Well, this was great, you know, because it's about the future. It's about putting a spotlight on what people in London, what they like about London, things that could be improved, where they want the direction, basically what they want to hear about in terms of a vision, what they want politicians to focus on. So, uh, so it was a, it's a great study to do, and it's a good benchmark uh, to kind of uh, bring the voices of the people of London to the table what they like about living in London, and things that they think that we could do a better job at. Okay, well, we're going to dig into those things. How do you do research like this? How did you put it together? So, you know, we do. Uh, we did a random telephone survey of 500 uh, London residents, and uh, we finished it on September the 23rd. And then we worked collaboratively with the, uh, the local LSTAR team and the Ontario Real Estate Association to kind of unpack, you know, what, uh, what was on the agenda for Londoners, what they liked, how they thought our politicians were doing, without naming names. No, name, <laughs> no names were named, Mike. But we did ask whether they were doing a good job or not on a lot of the big issues, and, uh, and basically to see what path Londoners wanted to take on, the, on a lot of these big issues. Nick Nanos joining us from Nanos Research. Okay, let's, let's dig into some of this. Is there anything that caught your eye that you went, wow, I didn't expect that? Well, one thing that didn't, didn't surprise me was that Londoners are obviously very proud of their city and very positive about their city. And, you know, when we asked them to kind of rate different aspects of uh, living in the city of London, you know, they saw it as a place that was uh, great to raise a family. The quality of the healthcare in London was seen as being excellent. The quality of life, London as a safe place to live, was, uh, was rated very well. What's at the bottom of the list, and it's kind of like, you know, not everything's perfect, right? Or is everything perfect in London, Mike? Or? Uh, we try every day, but uh, noticed, let's let's be honest. You're, no, you're, not everything. I noticed you hesitated for a minute, but uh, <laughs> at, at the at, at the bottom of a, of the list in terms of rating London, um, public transit, the job market, London, uh, and the affordability of homes was near the bottom of the list. Rail, public transit, that kind of stuff. So think of it this way: it's kind of like if. If you're in London, if you're from London, if you love London, you bump into one of your friends from another city and you're saying stuff like, hey, man, it's a great place to raise a family. It's a great place to live, great quality of life, great hospitals, all that stuff going for it. But, man, can we do something about transit and transportation? And uh, affordability is getting to be tough uh, for people in the city of London. So it didn't score as highly on those things. And, you know, the killer, and I don't know, 
do politicians listen to you, Mike, or listen to your show? Uh, I hope so. I, I can't guarantee, but I, I'm going to I'm going to throw it well, in the hope category. I might need you yeah. to do some research to to let me know. know one day whether bet, or not that's true. I bet you I bet you they do, but I think you should tell them to brace themselves. Okay, I'm 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 going to say those <laughs> words then for any London City Councilors who do happen to be listening to London Live right now. <laughs> Uh, be braced. Yeah. Here comes Mr. So, Nick Nanos. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we, we also asked uh, Londoners to rate municipal leaders, not anyone specifically, but municipal leaders on all of these same issues. And you know what? There's not a majority for anything that, that gave our municipal leaders a very good or good score on anything that was tested. And they got marginally better scores on attracting jobs, uh, but, you know, the the reality is, is that on, on stuff like homelessness, the score was actually quite negative. Affordable housing, it wasn't very strong. And um, what it speaks to the fact is, you know, maybe if we're talking about what, how to summarize this whole study, people are proud and positive about London. Uh, they think it's a great place to live, great place to bring up a family, great health care. Uh, we need to do a better job on public transit. We need to do a better job at affordable affordable housing. And our politicians need to do a better job. They need to do a better job at talking about these issues and trying to advance solutions. And I think, you know what I heard? I heard, I think we've talked enough about all this stuff. People want, people want action. And, uh, you know, I think when we look at this particular study, it's a blueprint for let's, in London, do something about how housing can be affordable so we can attract jobs and businesses here and so people can can live here and have better transportation and transit and and kind of turn those things around so that we can go from great to even greater. Nick Nanos joining us from Nanos Research. Nick has been working on a survey of Londoners asking things like what do you think of healthcare? What do you think of quality of life? What do you think of our municipal leaders? What do you think about the economic stability and jobs? And Nick, people are going to wonder, is there a way that they can look at the results and kind of break them down? Are they listed and, and published anywhere? Well, uh, I would suggest that you go to the LSTAR website. How's that? Okay. Uh, and you could probably get more information there. This poll is hot off the press. Like, I, seriously, we were drawing the ink just be, just about an hour ago because we were just briefing everyone on this, and uh, I would expect that it's going to be this will be shared in the public domain because the whole part of this is to have action, and the only way that's going to happen is if we put a spotlight not just on the stuff that's going well, but on the things that we need to do a better job at. Is this something you expect you might be asked to do for other municipalities now that something like this has come out? It'd be interesting to see how, you know, how the the impression of municipal politicians are in another city comparable to London. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that was one of the questions. And although, you know, as uh, John was saying, we've never done this specific study before. We've done kind of little dribs and drabs, but never pulled it into kind of a unified state of the city study. Uh, I would expect that there'll probably be other municipalities will want to do something because everybody wants to know. The first question that I was asked, hey, how do we do compared to other people? And uh, and uh, I was able to use some of the other research that we've had, but it would be even more powerful if we can see how much of a better job does London do compared to Ottawa, compared to to the Niagara region, compared to Kingston, Toronto, right? All those other big cities. And I think that's uh, that's probably where the future is going. But for right now, We've basically established a benchmark, 
And then maybe if the study is done in another two or three years, we'll be able to go back, and then there will be, Mike, a moment of reckoning. Perhaps positive, perhaps negative. (laughs) Well, Nick, we really appreciate you starting with us. For some reason, London is that benchmark that sets for a lot of things, whether it's tasting food or trying projects or, in this case, doing research. So thanks for being here and doing it and explaining what you have found for us. Thanks a lot, Mike. Take care. That's Nick Nanos from Nanos Research. So the first time ever he's been asked to do kind of a state of a city research project. And what have they come out with? Well, you heard. And none of this is going to be earth-shattering to you, but it's the idea that you put it into tangible numbers. Why is it that we deal with numbers so often? Why was it that we were talking about all of the numbers that go along with driving high? Because you've got to put it into numbers in order to be able to say, is this an issue? Is this something that's happening? You know, you look at analytics in sport. They're not the be-all and the end-all in everything. You hope. Baseball maybe went too far. But what they do is they give you that check. So you watch, and then you look at the analytics. And I was having a conversation about this earlier this week, that you think you see something. But maybe you're not seeing it exactly right because the numbers show, ah, it's a little bit different. In this case, what did Nick Nattos point out if you're just joining us? State of the Union survey, public transit, people aren't too happy. Yeah, okay, I can get that. Although, some university students are really happy with it. And I'd be interested to see a breakdown. University and college students... You know, I'll scan things with the class that I teach at Fanshawe or with my daughter's friends, things like that. And, of course, they aren't even close to the statistical integrity of something that Nanos Research is doing. But they tend to like what they have at their disposal. You know what they have at their disposal? In a way, you can call it this. I know it's built into the tuition. Free bus passes. They can make use of the bus. They just step on and step off and step on and step off. And a lot of them will say, yeah, I've, I've kind of figured it out and I can get here, there, and all over the place. I like it. LTC works well. We get a lot of people complaining about it. They are always striving to be better, and they make that very clear. And let's face it, they are making improvements. We've got buses going to routes where at one point there was never a route to go to, but now it's important to be there. So things will continue to improve, but everybody's all over the public transit. Oh, we need light rail. Well, that's not necessarily a public transit problem. That's not an LTC problem. That's just a city problem. We have too much congestion. Jesse Helmer was right years ago. Get out of our cars. We got to get out. We got too many cars in the downtown. We've seen other cities do this. Look at the other London. London, England, they're still charging you to drive downtown, right? You have to pay if you want to drive downtown. Someday we'll look at that too. Jobs, affordability of homes. We used to be in this bubble in real estate. And then Toronto people decided to retire. And this area is great. They've got everything they could possibly need here. It's a great location. Beautiful city. Lots of amenities. Green spaces, parks. You know where I'd like to retire? London, Ontario. What if I sold my house for $1.2 million? That house that I bought for 100000 and then I moved to London. And then we've seen the demand rise, and from there, 
we have ourselves less affordable housing. Rents have gone up. The rent stuff we need to pay closer attention to around the world. Rents are a problem around the world. But those are the things that have come out of this. So now that you have the numbers, and again, there were a lot of municipal politicians in attendance today to watch Nick Nanos make his presentation, now you can take that and hopefully act on it. But it doesn't happen overnight. We all want quick fixes. won't be a quick quick fix, but it's great to have these particular numbers. So thanks to Nick. Thanks to LSTAR, the London St. Thomas Association of Realtors, for putting this together. You can go to their website and read a little more. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 